Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Bopperai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Now, we are very happy to bring along to you a fellow conspiracy theorist, Tom DeVisia, today from the U.S., the East Coast, Tom. And before I go on to let Tom make his introductions, I am going to read out what the Southern Poverty Law Center has to say about you, Tom. And there's a picture of you that is tagged extremist info, and it goes on to say, Tom DeWeese has built a career of issuing scary warnings about Agenda 21, a completely voluntary United Nations set of principles for sustainable resource management where others see sensible environmental guidelines, devise stands, sinister land-grabbing, socialist, UN initiatives that threaten national sovereignty, private property rights and freedom, not to mention turning our children into one-world government zombies. That's quite an introduction. Welcome, Tom. <laughs> yes, it is. I, uh, I've been on their uh, domestic terrorist list for several years. And so forth. The funny thing about that is that they they say I've built this career of spreading uh, conspiracy theories and so forth. All I've ever really done is quote them and tell people what they have said, what what they're doing. And uh, somehow that's become a conspiracy theory. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's. I know. And, you know, out here uh, in New Zealand, we have done the same thing. I've been doing webinars with. outfit, you know, uh, that have begun this radio program called Voices for Freedom. And we've been speaking about Agenda 2030, literally quoting from their own documents. And it turns out uh, people like me and Don are a cancer attacking grassroots of uh, democracy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a whole lot of those quotes with me tonight. So I uh, I mean, they're very bold in what they they're very clear in what they're saying. If you are reading their documents and and once you begin to bring that out, then they start to deny it and and try to make you stop, stop talking and stop revealing what they're what they're doing. But every single thing I've been fighting this since 1992 and literally everything we predicted, everything we said they were going to do is happening. All across the world, the uh, you know they they said. Let me just share one of these with you. This is their the, the United Nations uh, uh, thing they put out on Agenda 21. It says this: effective execution of Agenda 21 will require a profound reorientation of all human society, unlike anything the world has ever experienced. A major shift in the priorities of both governments and individuals and an unprecedented redevelopment of human and financial resources. This shift will demand that a concern for the environmental consequences of every human action be integrated into individual and collective decision-making at every level. But I'm the nut. (laughs) Yeah, you're the nut, we're the nut, we can read. We can assess what their intention is, but we're all conspiracy theorists. Um, and in fact, I have to say at this outset, uh, at the outset here, we've got 120 people in the New Zealand Parliament. Not one of them would agree 
that we're making um, sense at the moment because they're all part of uh, the globalist agenda by the sound of it because uh, none of them will accept that this stuff is in writing and is real. And it then filters, as you've talked about in some of the talks I've, I've seen of you, um, right down to our local authority level. Our provincial governance uh, has got these parameters, these edicts from the United Nations all through their um, through their their planning. So, yeah, we're we're nuts because we can read, and of course, of course, we should take that as a badge of honour, uh, especially when the likes of the Guardian in the UK writes uh, negatively about um, those of us that that bring this sort of stuff up. I think it is a badge of honour. So good, good on you and all power to yeah, your own. That's absolutely, yeah. I, you know, it, here in in the in the states, it has now become. Uh, higher edge, you know, real education, mathematics, things like that. Uh, anything that deals with an absolute fact is racist. We're not allowed to talk about that anymore. So, you know, it, 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 I mean, they are literally, uh, key, you know, children in schools getting ready to graduate from high school who have gotten a scholarship or some kind of an edu- uh, of an educational honor to go into a college. They're not spreading that anymore because it might make, uh, you know, other people who didn't achieve that feel bad about themselves. You know, and this kind of idiocy that we are dealing with today all across the world is designed to make us stupid, to make us so we don't question anything that's happening. And uh, then they can just go ahead and rule and regulate us any way they want. We are just a resource for them. That's it. So, 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 Tom. The genesis of all this um, predates uh, your 1992 um, um, light bulb moment when you started uh, dealing with all this. When do you think uh, the genesis of this uh, emanated from? And I would add well, you another know question here, Tom, if I may. For our listeners, sure. they hear an American voice coming through the airwaves. And I, though I did read that glowing introduction to you from the Southern Poverty Law Society, would you introduce yourself a bit more? Introduce myself. Yes, uh, I am president of the American Policy Center, uh, and we've been around since about 1986. And uh, we, in the early days, we actually were called the Foreign Policy Center in the beginning. And uh, we did such things as uh, we sent the only privately funded uh, election observation team to Panama when uh, Noriega there, the dictator there, stole that election. Uh, we were there. We saw what they were doing. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that uh, not a single vote in that election was ever counted. But the day I, the day after the election, I was leaving and a newspaper in the airport said Noriega wins by 55 <laughs> you percent. Know? Uh, so we did that. We got involved heavily into the education issues, what was happening to the American public education system which now is is producing these what I call global village idiots that are coming out of school. Uh, We did that. Then I got involved in the property rights movement. And as I began to see a lot of these really radical environmental programs that were coming out of policies, and I kept asking the question, what about the property rights of these people that are affected by this? And that's what got me involved in it. And uh, a a very uh, good friend of mine, my mentor, his name was Henry Lamb, uh, he was going to these international uh, UN meetings, and he was there when they introduced Agenda 21. And he came home with all this information, and he brought a group of us who were property rights advocates, 
uh, together in a, in a meeting in a hotel and just kept piling more and more and more of what they were uh, advocating, what they were pro- uh, planning and so forth. And we became the major voice across the country uh, you know, to expose this. We created something called Freedom 21, and we held 10 national conferences and uh, began to teach other people, begin to build a cadre of people to uh, stand up to it and, and fight. And so that's how we got started. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So, yeah. Gosh, yeah, and so and, and so going back uh, to my question about the genesis, I mean, it doesn't take one much research to realize it's a deeper um, history to this um, this movement. And so when yeah. did you what what do you think was the precursor to um, to the agendas? Uh, what predated the Club of Rome, predated perhaps the formation of the United Nations? Can you give your view on that? I can. I, let me start by saying this. Throughout history, there have always been forces who wanted to rule the world. What they always did in the past was they put together armies and they invaded and they you know, killed people and subjugated people and, and took control. These guys are diabolical. They have found a way to get people to voluntarily give up their liberties with the fear, the, what they've settled on to get us to do that, this the, the most powerful message is climate change. I have had environmentalists get in my face and say, it doesn't matter how many rights you think you have if you don't have a planet to stand on. And that fear has gotten people to voluntarily give up their liberties. We can go back, uh, you know, at, right after World War II, uh, the, the United Nations, really the, the creation of that, Uh, It was supposed to be a place where uh, countries could come together and discuss their differences so that we didn't have any more wars like we had just come through, and we could settle it there around a table. That was the concept that was sold for it. But uh, as you begin to look at what they began to pull together, the goal became global governance, that individual nations, uh, independent nations that have their own ideas are the root of war. Uh, If somebody has this idea and this other country has this other idea, then we have that problem. So we had to have global governance where the United Nations was the voice of reason and uh, control what, you know, so, so the sovereignty of individual nations became a target right there from the very beginning. And all of these policies now that we're looking at uh, are literally uh, that goal of creating global governance, and they they came up with this excuse of in, 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 you know climate change, environmental protection, so forth, as the weapon to use to get us all to comply. And so I recall uh, when I first started watching American television, CNN had a strap line: uh, "A world without borders." And I, of course, uh, being the naive person I am, uh, thought, oh, that seems good, a a world of news without borders. So the news will just come at us unfettered and unbiased, and it'll be fantastic. I didn't realize that the agenda was um, quite different from CNN. Um, And I look at their programming today, and uh, to get a bit of balance, I watch watch Fox as well. Uh, So I do get both sides of the spectrum. uh, But you realize that the agenda was being pushed by the media uh, for many years as well. Um, so just could you give uh, a wee bit of a, a, a taster for the, the edicts of the Club of Rome and then their, their revision leading into Agenda 21? 
Sure. Yeah. Let me just share this with you. Uh, this is from the Club of Rome as they laid down the, the, the basis of what they were going to promote. The common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. All of these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. That is diabolical. I've come to use that a lot. <laughs> it's just unbelievable that they, uh, you know, that they're they're straight out with it right there. And uh, what more do you have to argue with? I know. I I believe those ones are from that uh, the publication called the First Global Revolution from the Club of Rome, and I was reading this. I am a counselor here in New Zealand in one of our uh, smaller uh, regions where I live, Southland District Council, and I was looking through the website of our largest council, which is Auckland Auckland City Council, and their climate change page links to the Club of Rome. They say for more, go there, and I said, right, let me have a look because. Unlike many other countries, our demographics are uh, a little uh, skewy, Tom. We have a third of the country just in one country, uh, one city, Auckland. And uh, pretty much Auckland seems to rule or lead the way in all of this, be it a super city being formed or be it, you know, amalgamating everything. And I was reading the same thing. And yet we are now being pushed through. And I've listened to your talks about how regional councils and local councils, and I'm now living that virtually, how every single document is about IPCC and IPCC's predictions, the United Nations Panel on Climate Change, and this is what's going to happen. We are now going to be pushing forward a new legislation under our Resource Management Act, which they call Manage Retreat. So already, 80% of the country is in a handful of cities, but whatever is left of the coast, I don't. We are all going to be drowning really, really soon. Yeah, it's very interesting. You say that in one city, there's the document right there quoting these things. And if you begin to look now, we have uh, across our country and in our local cities and so forth, uh, they are putting these comprehensive development plans together to to develop the community and, and looking for the future. And you will begin to see they are quoting right straight out there, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, uh, various other things like that, where they say it. Now, here you have the Southern Poverty Law Center says, I made all this up. And it's just it was just a good suggestion, just a voluntary thing. There's no rule of law to put all this in place. But when you start passing legislation that encompasses those ideas, it becomes the rule of law. And that's exactly what we're what we're dealing with. And uh, it's it's just amazing. And I want to share one other thing with you here. The uh, you know, we, we have and I'm sure you're talking about their smart growth. And now we're hearing 15 minute cities. And first of all, as you're saying, what's happening in the cities, pulling all this together. Well, their plan is to pull everybody together into massive cities, and the rural people live in the rural areas are dangerous to them because they're much more independent. They can survive. They can grow their own food. They can do things, and people in the cities are totally dependent on the government. That is the root of the smart growth program where they are de determining where you will live, 
how you will live. They will control your energy. They control your food supply. They control your transportation and all of that. And here's what's interesting about that. Came across this quote not too long ago. This is uh, a quote from 1968. Now, they talk about if you listen to your uh, planners and so forth, They'll talk about the reason that we need this the development programs is because we got to make sure we don't have chaotic growth of the cities. That sound familiar? Well, they here is this quote: the chaotic growth of cities will be replaced by a dynamic system of urban settlement. The region is formed by the economic interdependence of its development. The region has a single system of transportation, a centralized administration, and a united system of education and research. This was written in 1968 by a Soviet Russian architect named Alexei Gutinov in a document entitled The Ideal Communist City. Oh. Need we say more? <laughs> <laughs> we, we totally don't need to say more. And as you just said, that, you know, once you start passing laws, what was voluntary is now legislated. We are in the second term of uh, what our MPs openly say, a socialist government. So I have no qualms saying that I'm a minister for local government right now. Uh, there's an MP by the name of Kyron McAnulty, who has moved from one of our uh, councils. He was the economic planner of one of the councils. He's now come into the parliament. And in his speech, he said, I'm a proud socialist. The people of you know my constituency elected me. Our government, uh, our ex-Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, in a speech uh, in New York on the Goalkeepers uh, Forum, she said in 2018 that we are going to be doing what something no other country has done before and embed indicators like the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, into everything we do. My government will no longer rely on traditional measures of progress, such as economic growth, but will introduce something called as living standards framework, putting the notion of intergenerational sustainable well-being and the different decisions we make. It is like well, surreal what we've what we've come to here, and you know people tend to forget a small island nation at the bottom of the Pacific, five million people. But gosh, are we being hammered hard? Absolutely, and it's uh, uh, I mean it's everywhere. And you think you're a small country, you know, having this happen. The United States of America is having it happen as well. And here you had a nation that was founded on the idea of individual liberty, private property, free enterprise, and the idea of our, our constitution. Unlike almost every other nation on earth, most nations were set up, uh, almost all of them were set up where the government decided what your rights would be. Our constitution was set up with the idea that you were born with your rights and it's government's job to protect them. And here we are. Uh, you know, every one of those rights is under attack, and uh, we are we are doing an education system where our children aren't taught our history, aren't taught our philosophy, aren't taught uh, anything about any of this, and so they don't know. And when you're born with a blank slate in your mind, then you are what you become is is what you put in, and. Uh, we have a whole generation, we have more than one generation now that has been victims of this education system that know absolutely nothing about what those rights are. So they don't even know to ask the question. 
So here we are, and uh, in a nation that was founded with, you were born with your rights, and you have a right for them to be protected, to we're going to all be one big you know, pool here, and uh, nobody will ever think outside of the box because that causes trouble. If somebody's thinking differently, that's going to mess up our well-organized society. <laughs> and, and when you have that, when you have that society, now you have killed the incentive for someone to look into something and try to invent a better way, to come up with a different idea, to come up with uh, new products and so forth. All of that is killed. People become zombies that just sit there and accept whatever they're told. And so what, what will society be as we, as we move down the road here with this, that uh, no one is thinking ahead or thinking about how to get around this so forth. We're all just waiting to be used. However, these tools at the top want to use us. Well, I, I think, Tom, we're lazy. I mean, there's plenty of people who do know what we're talking about, but they do they believe do that, that. Well, they do now, but they do believe we get new leaders in like you had uh, Reagan. Then you had perhaps the next right of center um, uh, a leader was Trump. And you think the curtain's sort of coming down on all this nonsense and they un they unveil this stuff they try to and all of a sudden they get booted out and we're back to square one and just as an adjunct to that New Zealand has a mixed member uh, proportional representation scheme uh, government where we have 120 MPs of which about I think it's 48 actually are unelected by the regions they that uh, they have no they're, they're on a list, so they get prioritised by their party. So 48 of these people are elected with no mandate from the voter, really, except through what's called a party list. And second to, secondary to all of this is we did used to, uh, well, we still have the Public Works Act where you can expropriate or take the property of an individual for the good of the public and you compensate. But the dominant rules in this country now are, under what's called the Bill of Rights, which doesn't really recognise uh, private property rights to the level that you need. And secondly, we have a, a Resource Management Act of 1991 that puts the precautionary principle ahead of everything. And of course, there is no compensation for takings under that act. Uh, the precautionary principle, as we find out in climate change policies in New Zealand, is using an RCP of 85 uh, you know, representative concentration pathway. So the most extreme um, um, likelihood of uh, catas catastrophic warming. So we've got all these precautions in New Zealand. Sorry, this is a big statement. And no one seems willing to rein it in. No one. No. Because of our, no. our representation system, I think. Yeah. Well, people, they're frustrated. They're intimidated. Uh, and uh, if they do speak out, then they're attacked, and and so they they pull back. Uh, you know, even even in this country, people are beginning to be afraid with our ideals to uh, gather in rallies and so forth because uh, we, we now we have these thugs that come in and start uh, you know violence in the middle of it, and then they blame us for it. And so people get intimidated. They have they these guys have left no stone unturned. They they go after every single if, if something is a potential threat to what they're doing, that becomes an under attack. And uh, our side really doesn't grasp this whole thing. They have an agenda. 
And no matter what happens, I've said several times now in our election process that uh, if these people we're talking about here, the forces behind all this, uh, if, if we lose an election, then we say, well, golly, that didn't work. Well, we'll just go home, you know, better luck next time. These guys, if they lose an election, they go, that's not going to happen again. And they become determined. The reason is they have a very specific agenda of where they're going. And we don't. We aren't motivated by something. We have wonderful things from our history that we should be out there fighting for, but we aren't. And they're getting pushed back farther and farther. And so people just start to accept it and, and let it go. And well, we lost that one too. So this is what has to happen. One of the main things that I've been doing uh, over the last two years, really, uh, I, I coined the term freedom pod to build a freedom pod in your own community. And uh, I realize we have a little different uh, setup on our on our governments, but I, uh, as I worked with some folks in Canada and so forth, and they've, they've reminded me that a lot of these things will still work. Uh, no matter how it's set up. But the idea is, first of all, that we need to come together. You don't need a huge majority. You just need a really dedicated uh, group of 25 or 30 people. You begin to make a lot of impact. Research, know what uh, you're facing, know your enemy. Look at the policies that are being put in place. Look at the people who are putting those things in place. And uh, uh, one of the things we have to do is make the people who are putting these policies together, the locally elected uh, representatives and so forth, make them feel pain for what they're doing. Make them responsible for what they've done. And uh, uh, and there's several different ways to, to organize and speak out. We've even got people now starting their own little newspaper because you can't trust the local newspaper. And uh, that's starting to have some success and uh, getting a way to speak out and so forth. I, I mean, I could go on for hours about what to do about all that, but that's the basic uh, idea of we have to get involved and it's not going to go away. One of the things everybody wants to do is support you know, in this country, you know, who's running for president. We get our guy elected president and no, he's going to take care of it. I can go home now. That's not going to happen. And that's what I'm talking about with the freedom pod. You're building the route from the ground up. And, uh, you know, and you have that, that platform, a permanent infrastructure to fight back and it, it, imagine you get one guy elected and you leave him there and all these other forces are coming at him and he can't win. And we've got to learn that. Do it at home. I found myself nodding vigorously when you were just talking about that local. And that's something where Voices for Freedom, we have done that. We have about uh, well over 100,000 members across the country well over that now, which is pretty good for such a small population base. It is. Have yes. coordinators, 100 plus coordinators in different towns and cities, villages even, one of whom I am, and which is why I had media attacking me like last year. VFF, with his Voices for Freedom coordinator, anti-vaxxers running for local body elections. They helped me, actually. I should give credit where it's due. Otherwise, no one would know a farming mum in the sticks, and here I am on the council. But for me, it has always been about local, because ultimately, as I've often said in all those webinars, when the agenda comes through, it comes through to your lo local council. And what you said, make them uncomfortable. I'm one of those. And yep, I would like to be made uncomfortable, because for many of us, our politicians, 
are not reachable. We have two islands. I mean, I couldn't even make it to Wellington last year for the protests. The farm had a drought. But our local representatives are those who live, walk, and talk in our communities. And that is where the pressure has to be because just, and I've had many people, you know, tell me, oh, but this year elections are MPs and who are you backing? I said, I should admit that at times I've been guilty of not even voting in the central elections. For me, local is where it is at. If every one of ourselves just starts looking after our own backyard, that's the country sorted. But, you know, the central elections and the way the media whips up the hysteria, it makes something bring an all new set of uh, faces at the beehive, which is what we call our parliament, and very aptly. So I'd say waspite might be more appropriate. But they seem to think that if you change the elections, uh, just the party, it would happen. But currently, our opposition, who everyone is gunning for in the next election that, you know, we've had enough of two terms of a socialist government. People need to realize here that the face, the leader who's heading that, Christopher Luxon, was the guy whom our last prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, elected to the to head her business advisory council. That man at that time was head of Air New Zealand, the CEO. So will that change? You know, is it national politics or is it local politics that really make a difference? Exactly. Well, you know, people ask the question that, uh, you know, how is it that these policies pop up? Where do they come from? And and uh, you, you see your city or, or your local community uh, government come up with something and you begin to look and you see, well, that's identical to what they're doing over in another town, in another town. And uh, what people have to understand these are not just policies that pop up from different politicians or whatever. As I said, there's an agenda. What a lot of people don't understand is that uh, your elected officials, whether they are local or government or federal, uh, you know, national, uh, are surrounded by an army of non-governmental organizations. These are the people that work directly out of the United Nations, many of them, uh, and they are the ones that bring the policies to them. And they, uh, when one of them gets elected, you maybe elect somebody who's really a good guy, sound like he was gonna really do some good work. And all of a sudden, he's turned on you, won't even talk to you anymore. Why? Because he's been surrounded by these people. They are giving him money. They are giving him, uh, a sample legislation. They've got it all right here in a box, got the money for you, don't even have to think, put it right in place. Step by step by step, that agenda is put into place. And uh, they begin to believe, well, this is a proper role of government. One of the things you'll hear them say is, well, this is just how it's done now. And so step by step, they put it in place. And now one of us walks in and says, well, you know, this policy will do this. This is not good. This is going to hurt us here or whatever. And, and these guys are whispering in his ear, the guy's crazy. Don't pay attention to him. You know, <laughs> this is what goes on. And uh, the, we have to understand that. The bottom line is, while all of this is going on, we aren't there. And that's what has to change. And that's what I mean by building a freedom pod and a permanent infrastructure to fight back. Uh, one of the things you can do is have three or four people that volunteer to be what we call the watchers. All they have to do, they don't have to say anything, don't have to do anything, just go in and sit and listen. And uh, every public meeting, they will begin to see who the players are. They will begin to see, may, they might even hear about a policy coming up before it's even been introduced. 
And now you've got the goods that you can begin to organize against it before it's put in place. Things like that. We have got to be there to understand what's going on and uh, and and be ready for it. So, you know, that's... <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's a big dose of cynicism required when you're sitting in the room uh, with these people, because uh, as you say, the agenda is well and truly in place and it's subtle and it just creeps through and, and elevates itself. In New Zealand, we have a system uh, that suggests um, that you submit. So you you do submissions to policy. Uh, by that very inference, you've already been beaten because the term submission is all about losing isn't it? And giving in. So it's the stupidest concept. And I've been part of it for 30 years. And it took me a long time to realize all I was doing was dignifying the rubbish that was coming out of, of the political uh, masters, a political class. So can we just move on to one other topic? Um, sure. What's the role of uh, philanthropic uh, organizations in all of this? Because uh, they appear to be just so nice. Uh, everybody's doing the right thing, and um, you know the world's going to be a better place because we're we're doing this uh, charitable sort of stuff. My unbundling of a lot of this stuff shows that there's a fairly good paycheck at the back of it all for for some of these philanthropists. How do there's you see massive it? amounts of money? There's money coming out of the UN. There's money coming out of foundations. There's money coming out of the governments to put these things in place. Uh, they they call themselves philanthropic, but uh, they are they, they have this agenda. And, uh, you know, here we have like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, these kind of people with massive amounts of money. And, you know, they're all part of this agenda. And uh, they uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the things that happens. Uh, there is a um, one organization. Uh, oh, now, now my brain just went quick. It's, they, uh, they, it's one environmental organization that has a huge amount of money. And if they want to stop uh, some kind of, uh, of a development somewhere, uh, they just want to, they don't want it, they don't want to have it happen. They will come up with a reason like there is a certain sucker fish that lives there and that's their habitat. And uh, so they will now, uh, Environmental Grant Makers Association, what I was trying to say, they will put up a million dollars and create the Save the Suckerfish Foundation, and they will start a whole big campaign for the environment to save this. And they will stop. There's a situation in Los Angeles where they've been trying to extend the runway there for a long time, and they can't do it because of this very kind of a tactic that they they are saying out in the field where they want to put the runway there's something you know endangered living out there this is the kind of tactics they do and uh they they make the stuff up the environmental movement is nothing but massive lies now there i go the southern poverty law center is going to love that line but it is true you can look at almost every single policy that they are trying to put together to protect the planet and find out it's damaging the planet. And uh, my, my, my prime example of that is the wind and solar movement, that here we are, we're not going to have uh, coal and oil and, and you know, uh, the, all these different things, and everything's going to be wind and solar. We're talking, in order for them to accomplish that worldwide, 
you are talking about millions and millions and millions of acres that are underneath plastic solar panels or wind towers. And two things will happen. First of all, if you go underneath those solar panels, you're going to find out that there is nothing but cement and infrastructure under there. Talking, talk about paving the earth, putting all of that in place. If you have all of these wind towers out there, you are not going to have anything flying in the sky to protect the environment, you understand. This is what we're looking at in order to put all of this in place. And uh, it, it, you have a coal plant and it takes up two or three acres and it covers several cities, it provides what they need versus this. And uh, on top of that, there's all kinds of copper and there's all kinds of, you need oil to make plastic, you need oil to make the wind towers turn. All of that is part of it. It's all based on a lie and, uh, you know, they're destroying our society on that lie. Well, you know, they, they all talk about the externalities uh, that that sort of uh, uh, an activity causes, like, uh, like for instance, we're dairy farmers or, or the like in New Zealand. Um, we're not paying the full cost to the environment for the use of the water, the sun, the, the air, the whole lot. We just don't pay. And therefore, consumers actually have never been asked to pay if that's the truth. But we still resist uh, even as a country with um, 80% plus renewable energy, uh, we still resist the ability to do nuclear um, power stations that could minimise all the effects you're talking about through wind and solar. Uh, they would be, you know, in New Zealand sense, it would be placed in a, a nearer the bigger city rather than having all the transmission losses. Um, there's so much simple many simple remedies for energy shortages. I, I don't have any negativity towards electrifying stuff because it's very clean and it's simple, uh, but it's it's got to be efficient and it's got to be um, unsubsidized. And currently in New Zealand, we because of the climate policies, we're going to be um, allowing, uh, well, we're giving privilege is what the word is. I'm not quite sure if it's subsidized. I can't defend that entirely, but... The privilege is high, and of course, society believes it's doing the right thing. Uh, but the society is going to pay for it. The electricity consumer is going to pay for it. So I don't know, Tom. We've um, things could be so much more simple. But I look and observe and get hope from the likes of Michael Schnellenberger, who uh, I think I've got his name right, who was massively involved in Greenpeace, and now is uh, a, a zealot, or more, he, he promotes nuclear energy. Uh, as as a saviour for for dirty energy, as as they call it. So yeah. let's have let's hope we have some common sense develop out of all this soon. There there have been many scientists who first bought into all of this, who had done their own research and have found out that it isn't true, and uh, you know have have changed sides on it. And that's but th what happens then is that they are cut off from any kind of grants. They're cut off from having anything published in any scientific magazine, you know that sort of thing. We are dealing with something here. I'm on the front lines of fighting this right now. Uh, up in the Midwest of the United States, they are working to put in a carbon capture pipeline to put in, you know, bury carbon into the ground to protect the environment. And what we have found, first of all, I've got a chart from the U.S. Navy, by the way, 
that shows that we are going through a CO2 starvation. CO2, carbon is not a pollutant. Plants have to have it in order to grow. And what we're looking at now is we are now at like 460 parts per million in uh, CO2 right now. And we, re- we, we really can hardly survive under less than 1, 000, uh, 1,600 parts per million. And we're going down and they're burying it into the ground to save the environment. And on and on and on like this that, that, that we're having. What they're doing with all this and all that description of what's happening with the solar panels, millions of acres of these things and so forth, not only are we destroying farmland that we need to raise our crops and feed us, but um, we're now finding, I've got some scientists who have told us that um, one of the things that's that's coming about with this is the possibility of a new dust bowl, like destroyed the economies back in the 30s and so forth, uh, because of what's happening. You're also finding that uh, putting these wind towers out into the ocean are affecting whales. <laughs> Here, we used to call these guys tree huggers. It's uh, the environmental movement, but uh, got a thing here from um, uh, Scotland where putting all of the uh, the wind industry uh, in place, they have uh, cut off the trees in over 17,000 acres in just tiny little Scotland, and they wiped out 14 million trees to protect the environment. This is what I, I mean, I know I'm getting repetitious on this, but over and over again, plan after plan after plan to protect the environment is destroying the environment much beyond anything that industrial uh, man could do, uh, you know, for this. And this is what we have to understand. This is not about protecting the environment. This is about creating an agenda to get you to voluntarily give up your liberties and for them to control every aspect of your life. And the other thing, one more thing, everything they're pushing right now is to get rid of gas and oil and coal and everything's going to be electric electric cars electric ranges in your in your uh kitchen on and on we have all these kids that are using their their computers and their phones and so forth every electric 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 everywhere there's not going to be any electric if we put all of this in place the way they're saying we would have four percent of the electric we need to run our societies so, young people, listen. This is what's happening to you. Well, I think you've just highlighted all the externalities that aren't being talked about for day-to-day living, no matter where you look. Um, even if you diminish the uh, amount of fossil-based fossil based, fossil, uh, based um, goods and services you have, it's not going to end tomorrow. Um, and ele- electrification is a big, big deal that uses masses of resources um, and will limit um, some of those resources for other uses, like, for instance, uh, coppers or cobalts, um, things like that, that can't be, they're going to be dominated by the need for the, the current battery manufacturing. I mean, no one thinks about all this stuff, even though there will be evolution and batteries will change, they perhaps won't have that. I mean, I've just got a belief that you trust in the evolution of ideas and uh, and life's good and you have property rights, stable property rights, uh, as you promote. Uh, but, but we're a long way from that, as you say, Tom. Uh, why is it that we can't get my neighbours to think like me? Or it just seems so. These freedom pods you talk about, 
I, I think, what a great concept. Um, but I tried immediately thought, who could I go to? Yeah, I could go to Jaspreet, uh, but I I haven't got an army. Uh, you, you talk about three or four in a, in a pod. There's not many people thinking that this is a big deal yet because it, mm-hmm. it hasn't hurt them as significantly as it needs to. Uh, so I'm I'm a bit concerned about what to do next, but talking about oh, it. Absolutely, yeah. And you're absolutely right. They, uh, I have found over 30 years of fighting this that um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of audiences who were half asleep and rolling their eyes and not paying attention. And what I found over the years is if you were not affected by these pro- these policies yet, you didn't care. The people who became our fiercest warriors in fighting against this stuff were people who were affected by it. And uh, the to me, the positive to me about all of this, I try to look for the for the the good in, in in what's going on, is that they have now moved. I think faster than they probably should have, and more people are waking up to it. And uh, I know a whole lot of people who have been uh, on the left and so forth who are turning and changing sides, and because they're seeing. Uh, this they be, now everybody is a victim of these things, or they will be very shortly. We're talking food shortages. We're talking energy shortages. We're talking transportation shortages. Uh, we're talking about eliminating pub, uh, private homes and everybody living under public housing and so forth. With the you know they're even putting out putting landlords out of business with their higher taxes and with rules and regulations, which means that all housing will become government housing. This is where it's headed, uh, and you know, more and more people are waking up to it, and uh, we're, we're getting more who, who are joining us, and we've got to build on that, and that's that's the bottom line. And yesterday I was in council, day before, and we were speaking here about, you know, there's certain bridges that my council can't seem to afford to pay for anymore. So we had people who came, farmers, who have property on both sides of the bridge. And suddenly their stock now needs a 15 kilometer deep, not to add just the complications of managing a property on both sides. And on the other hand, the same council has been given, because uh, I should add, we are a very centralized country in terms of funding. Amongst the OECD, we are probably the most centralized. The state governments are, you know, the provincial ones like us, we get about 6% of the tax take. 90 plus percent of the tax rate goes to the center government and we then it's doled out to us. So at the same time, when our council can't afford these bridges to be kept open and suddenly everything is a safety issue and has to be shut down promptly, we are putting in brand new toilet blocks. We are, they say, putting up a $3 million of an open spaces program out here. We live in the great outdoors. This is a stunning part of the world to get people to appreciate their surroundings more. And it's and I was speaking, I said, does someone think something is really screwy here? Because we can spend three million for this, but we can't use those funds anywhere else because they have come tagged with a specific purpose. So and when you put it like that, there's really no denying that this makes absolutely no sense that you can't afford to connect people. Give them the very basics of life, but let's spend X, Y, Z on connectivity, internet. Let's spend this much on, um, say, open spaces program and new toilet blocks in public parks. It's just gone insane. And even some of the most uh, 
loyal supporters are now of this, the socialist government are now like thinking, what's really happening? Our hospitals in New Zealand are an absolute shambles. Absolute. I had my daughter, seven-year-old, having to wait 48 hours to get her broken arm seen to. Can't follow the doctors after two days in A&E, which is what we call our ER. When they came, they did the job really well. They, you know, double-checked the x-rays and this and that and swelling in elbow. But 48 hours. And that was for a child who's pretty staunch. I have yesterday been told of somebody who was there with two fingers hanging by a tendon. This person's pain was that bad that he was going out of the ER to spare others, you know, his shrieking. Because he literally had to go out and scream and get it out. But all he had was ibuprofen. Someone else sitting in a wheelchair who by the time we left at hours later was unresponsive. And yet you're like, let's spend half a million or $3 million on open spaces program. Yeah, exactly. We, uh, you know, since the COVID lockdowns and so forth, we have found that they have literally destroyed the American medical system. They are literally telling doctors that they cannot recommend anything other than what the federal government is telling them that they can recommend. Uh, and they will lose their license if they don't follow suit with that. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're running into that, the, the whole thing. I am um, one of the things that uh, I, I'm telling my audiences today about all of this, because I, I hear what you guys are saying about what you're up against. And, and uh, it, 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 I mean, it just seems almost hopeless in, in many ways. But one of the things that we need to do is stop being so polite. The other side will never give you an inch to try to say anything that you want to say. And we just go, well, okay. And we're very polite people where, you know, we're, we're uh, ladies and gentlemen and so forth. And we let it go. And we, as I said earlier, making these officials feel pain and responsibility for what they do. I'll give you just two examples of, of some things that I've recommended some people. I was in a, a city up in Colorado, state of Colorado. And they were telling me that, the main source of income there for their community was oil. And a woman on the city council had passed some kind of legislation that was affecting the oil industry. And they were showing me a chart of how the, the, the income is going down. I said, put her name on it. It's her chart. You know, <laughs> it, uh, make her responsible for what she did. I was talking to some people up in Maine just a couple of weeks ago. And they were telling me how they're putting uh, these policies in place that are eliminating uh, neighborhoods, single-family neighborhoods, single-family homes to build it all into this high-rises, these smart-growth communities. And I said, find out who voted for this bill and go take a picture of their house and see if they live in that kind of a place. Let's put it right down there. How dare you tell me I have to when you live like this? These are the kind of things we need to do to bring it home and make these guys feel the pain for and responsibility for what they're doing to everybody else. How dare you tell me I have to live this way when you live like that? So that's and and, and the contradiction uh, here I I've tried to expose in my political life was that. Um, the land, the sea, and the scenery pretty much give up everything as the genesis of the economy. And um, and yet the people that are telling me to produce less 
are the people that are giving the edicts that want you to produce more to pay for the local taxes and the central government taxes. So I've still got this view that the biggest farm, even though I'm a farmer, the biggest farm uh, isn't the individual farmers. The biggest farm is the political class in New Zealand. They're farming us completely. And uh, I don't know why I can't get that message through. But I mean, for instance, my property taxes would be 10 times more than a person um, uh, living in just a house down the road without um, an acreage. So, but the, they've got equal access to the base services. Um, it just makes no sense. Equal access, equal opportunity, equal payment for taxes, surely. Uh, should be, should, but no, we have property valuation-based rating and that skews the scrum um, against against farming, really. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, one of the questions that uh, I'm asked all the time, uh, and I and I really ask it myself: these forces who are putting these policies in place, and they are destroying economies, destroying a way of life, destroying the food supply, destroying the energy supply. What are they counting on to live? They have to live in that society as well, and uh, you know that's a that's a it's a toughie to ask that question. Uh, I, I've heard all kinds of really wild. You know, comments about this. And I'm beginning to see, you know, they're trying to develop robots. Maybe they think robots are going to create all this stuff for them. They can live that way. Uh, you know, the, 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 all the, the, all the, uh, the goods and services that are left just go to them. I don't know. But, but literally, this is, and that maybe is a good question to ask him. When you destroy the economy with this particular policy, sir, how are you going to live when that is put in place? You know, it's a, it's a question. Perhaps they haven't thought beyond their nose because there will be the top dog in this regime, or there will be a, a bunch of top dogs, but there won't be lots of top dogs. And uh, it's about who's going to be eliminated uh, in that regime. So these people in the middle um, might just be called the useful idiots that um, have, is a term that we've become used to in this country. Absolutely, yes. Years. Gentlemen, yeah. if I may now go to something we've not yet touched upon, cultural Marxism. Because I see that here. I am a person, I, I migrated with my husband to New Zealand in 2009. And I come from India, where for centuries, millennia, our politicians, our leaders have pitted us against each other based on religion. So when I came to two, New Zealand in 2009, it seemed like a peaceful place, relatively egalitarian. There were not so many, you know, in India, it's almost like, okay, you're a Sikh, let's pit you against a Hindu. And your temple, can there be another worship place here or something? All, this, all sorts of nonsense goes on there. And we laugh like politicians only remember us at the time of elections or a famine when they need farmers. Otherwise, everything else goes through the dustbin. And last four or five years in New Zealand, I am again and again, I get the sinking sense of deja vu that I'm back where I came from. We now in New Zealand, we have the Maori population and you have people, settlers who came from other places. This was early, say, 1800s. 1840, there was a treaty signed between the crown, the Maoris, the settlers, and right, the basic premise of the treaty. And again, I, I speak as someone who's not been here that long, was we are now one people. Suddenly, in the last five years, everything and this treaty of uh, that New Zealand science called the Treaty of Waitangi. They are using this because we have literally handed it over on a platter to implement the UNDRIP 
the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And we have a cultural war of sorts, the likes of which I can honestly say now I've not seen in India even. It's far worse. Everything is now, you are supposed to look at the world through the lens of your identity because it seems nothing else matters. What my heritage is, that's all who I am, that defined who I can become, and that's all I can ever aspire to. I know you've had those sorts of issues and we've seen Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of those in the US. Out here, it is a bit different because for a relatively long time, there has been peace. There has not been, you know, you have major deployments of your troops, uh, Tom, but New Zealand, we are very small in the bigger scheme of things. Much of New Zealand, and we are so far away from the world, has been peaceful. And there's been intermarriage, there's been peaceful coexistence. And now, in the midst of this COVID nonsense, our government decided it's a great time to make an ethnicity-based healthcare system. So $700 million spent on creating a new Maori healthcare system. The basic premise of which they said was that the average Maori lives seven or eight years less than the average other non-Maori New Zealander. So that means doctors must be racist. So we need a separate healthcare system. They are now talking in the wake of recent floods we had at one of our prime productive areas in the East Coast. They are now saying we possibly might need a Maori civil defense system. This thing is not ending and the wedge that it's driving in between society. I've had friends here, white friends, whose daughter, a very sensible teen, has come back from school telling her parents, I need a note to get out of history lesson. Because the way the lesson was delivered made me, as a white child, feel, God, I am horrible. My ancestors are horrible. I, I, I need to just get out of here. What, is, what are your views on this? Because I see this tying up, this you know, divide and rule. I see it clearly because I've seen it in India my whole life. Yeah, well, absolutely. The, the, the division... Uh, you know, getting right into the center people. We can't live in in peaceful coexistence, uh, sharing ideas, sharing values, at, uh, whatever your race is. And we have here now the whole thing about, uh, uh, you know, white uh, uh, exceptionalism and so forth that we, we if you're white, then you everything is, uh, you know, goes your way. And we hear it over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, it's, I, re- I remember the, the you know when when the in this country when we had the civil rights movement in the 60s and Martin Luther King and so forth Martin Luther King made the comment that you know he had the dream of uh the day when his children would be judged by the content of their character not the color of their skin they have literally thrown Martin Luther King out and nobody is judged by the content of their character we're not allowed to uh, even uh, talk about having white friends or having friends of, of different races and so forth. Everything is division, division, division. The reason, obviously, for that is that uh, you are much easier to control when when things are divided that way. You uh, Every single thing that happens in this country now is the white's fault, you know, and uh, it's the, the hatred, the ability to have to have friends of a different race uh, is is just you know not allowed, and that makes us much more vulnerable to control. That's what it's about, and that is the education system. There are no um, <clears throat> academics 
taught, taught in our American schools today. You just, we, we have on our television lots of times, uh, or you see it on the internet too, people will take a microphone out and go ask people on the street questions, just basic questions that you and I would sit there and scream the answer to. And people are going, I don't know. what In what year was the War of 1812 fought? Uh, 1922? I mean, you know, it's a, they know nothing about uh, a history, about philosophy, about economics. They're now telling us, I think I said earlier, that that uh, mathematics is now racist. Aren't they really saying that that that's because that the, you know, this other race is too stupid to know, to be able to add two plus two? I mean, really, how, talk about racist. <laughs> that's who is. So we, ha- you know, have all this to divide us, conquer us, and, uh, you know, put all this stuff in control, make us accept it. What the term woke is used a lot. Um, and to me, that's that is around uh, social justice. But how, how is it? Um, what's the meaning of it in, in the States? How, how is it? Because I've got a brother that lives in the States and he said, don't use that term. It's not it's not a nice term. Basically, what I, it's, it's funny to me because what woke is showing me to be is that everybody's asleep if they accept it. So I don't know how that works. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it literally is, this is what you're allowed to think. And if you think outside of that, you are a racist, you are a hate monger. And uh, so, you know, you're, you're not to be accepted into anything. You're, you're going to shut you out of society. And uh, and that's that's literally what where, where it's headed. Yeah, yeah, and add to that a conservative bigot. I mean, I, all these terms just come out, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it's in the New Zealand parlance uh, regularly now that term, but you ask people to define it, and it is quite hard. Uh, but it is all the facets we're talking about today. Um, yeah, looking at you, Don, you are probably uh, you know someone like Don. I think the term that the papers used was pale, stale, white male. And anyone a white middle-aged man, I'm I'm not being ageist down here, not, not much, but there's not much between you and me. But that's that's literally the way it is used. Everything your race is weaponized, and I, I have grown up myself in a multicultural society in India, and I've literally now I cringe at the word every time they use the word multicultural because when I was growing up, it just happened. You didn't put resources and try to make it work; it just happened. I come from an army family. So dad's a retired lieutenant colonel, brother's a colonel. And incidentally, Tom, I think I found you about 10, 15 years ago on YouTube talking about the United Nations. My dad and my brother, they both served uh, UN peacekeeping missions about 20 years apart, dad in Somalia and my brother in Congo. And uh, you are you don't have a choice in India. You know, they pick up the most war-decorated battalions or the ones with the most gallantry awards and off you go. That's your duty. Go there. You're deployed. And I got down on this path looking at the UN 30 years ago, about 2009 or 10. About the time I came to New Zealand, I found your chats on this, where this is heading. And now it is like all my last 30 years of talking about how futile. My dad, now he's 73. He's often remarks how pointless it was what they did in Somalia then. The Americans had just pulled out Operation Black Hawk Down. And Dad's battalion was deployed in 92, late 92, early 93. And he lost seven men in an ambush. And, you know, he's never forgotten that. 
and uh, just out of Somalia. And he says, you look at Somalia today, it's just still, and I don't mean this, but he said, it's still a hellhole. They have not allowed the people to improve. So what the hell were we doing there? He says, I lost men. And you can't even say it was for, you know, some cause. What was it for? Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of people made money off of it. <laughs> you know, a lot of people supplying supply the supplies for it and that sort of thing. So people got political power. Uh, we, you know, the funny thing, I said at the very beginning, the United Nations was created so that we wouldn't have any more wars. We have had more wars since the United Nations has been put in place than ever in the history of the world. And the worst part, starting with Korea, the Korean War, uh, is there's never been a victory in a, in a war again. And uh, Vietnam was a prime example. The Here we had Thousands and thousands of, of young men dying there. They were not allowed to fight in certain areas. They weren't allowed to uh, do different things. And uh, it was just a, t a total disaster. There was no no victory there. And, uh, you know, nothing changes with this. So why are we sending people in to fight these wars for, for no reason? And things just get more oppressed by the day as, uh, as we're looking at it. So, um you know, I uh, uh, back in nineteen or two thousand and six, I was invited to Cambridge University to debate the issue of the United Nations before a two hundred year old debating society, and it was supposed to be three to three, you know, <laughs> on the issue about the United Nations. It ended up being five to one, as you can imagine, and my entire presentation uh, was really focused on the idea that every policy coming out of the United Nations was redistribution of wealth. And I said, rob, rape, and pillage is the basic operandi of the modus operandi of the United Nations. That got an exciting response. Um, when I was done, uh, I went to this reception. I was the only speaker that went to this reception. And a young girl came up to me and she said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, you really don't believe in redistribution of the wealth? And I said, no, it's theft. And she said, but if somebody has more than they need, shouldn't they share that? And I said, why should they? And she backed up and I started to go into philosophy, teaching about private property rights and building personal wealth and the idea of incentive to do, get you ahead and so forth. And next thing I know, I've got 50 people standing around me listening as I'm going through all this. When I got done, she said, what an interesting point of view. How can I learn more? But here she is at Cambridge University, supposedly having the greatest opportunity to learn. And she knew nothing about this. This is the education system of today. No, There are no academics being taught. It is all about uh, the, the, the whole idea of behavior modification and uh, using psychology to change people the way they think and, and mold them. And, uh, and that's what I said. We're, we're producing out of our education system global village idiots. And uh, they, they don't know even to ask the questions of these things. So that's, that's what we're really facing. Well, it, it's interesting and timely you bring that up. Just yesterday, there was a headline about uh, the university closest to us um, in dire financial straits. Uh, and I would argue it's because of the very issues you have just brought up. They're 
teaching a whole lot of rubbish, uh, poor quality um, um, output. Uh, but of course, I've had that ability to do that for many years. And of course, now uh, with the less students, uh, perhaps, um, and perhaps too well-paid administrators and, and governors and, and tutors. So it's all coming home to roost. Our plus, on top of that, uh, this big thing about being mindful of the treaty, and it's called Titariti, and all that expanding through the uh, institutions is um, it doesn't add any value to anybody. Uh, so yeah. I don't know. We're in, a, we're in a bind. This long march through the institutions is well and truly alive and well. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I mean, I sound like a broken record, but getting down into the root, down into the basics in, in your local community and building a firm structure from there is the only way we have to fight back. When you try to fight as an individual or just a small group of individuals try to fight the national government, you're not going anywhere. But you begin to build that root, then you create, if, if you succeed at this, you create some individuals who understand these issues. Uh, I mean, I'm astounded by how many elected officials stand there totally stupid, not knowing any, any of this stuff and can't argue it. They just accept it because they don't know any better. But you begin to build a, a group of uh, people to, that will eventually begin to run for office and they they understand these policies and so forth. We've got to begin that that system and it will grow. It'll go up to the next level and to the next level of government and we begin to turn it around. The problem is that our side has not wanted to do the hard work to organize, to protect and promote the idea of liberty. And so now we're suffering the consequences of that. And now we've got a much harder job, but it's not over. We can turn this around because they're showing themselves so clearly for what they are. And uh, so many more people are going to suffer from it. One of the things we need to do in our movement is begin to paint the picture very clearly of what it is we are for. They're telling everybody what we're against. They're telling them that we're all just not only just a bunch of racists, but we're hate mongers. If we want to cut back on the size and, and, and the spending of government, well, that that's taking money out of the pockets of this group and so forth. And they paint us all as a bunch of hate mongers. We need to begin to paint the picture. What does freedom mean? What are we really advocating here? And what will be the result of that? if we are able to achieve it and begin to show how this is how somebody can have goals and dreams in their life. You know, when I grew up, that's what we talked about as we're growing up, our goals in our life, our dreams, what we want to be. You don't hear that mentioned today. Nobody talks about it. It's just survival. We need to start telling people we got to move past survival and begin to live our lives as we choose and not have, ask a government, what can you do on your property without their permission? The property that you pay for, the property that you invest in everything you have in it, what investment do they have in it? None, but they tell you what you can do on it. We have got to begin to ask these questions and make these policies, make it very clear. What is it we're advocating? The money you earn is yours. The incentive you have to make a change. Do you want to get involved? What's, what really interests you to, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, 
make up new ideas, new move forward? Where are the Edisons and the Teslas and so forth today to get us new ideas to move us forward? This is what we've got to take on and begin to promote and stop being on the defensive. We got to take the offensive and turn it around because these people are tyrants and they're idiots. <laughs> well, well said, Tom. Uh Fantastic. I, uh, I've i had that sort of ethos for many, many years. And I have this, uh, this line that says, um, um, the takers are taking too much from the makers. And it never used to be that way. And I want uh, a, a society of makers, not takers. Um, yeah, you can take if you want to use that term in, in a proper transactional method. Yeah, willing buyer, willing seller. But when you've got takers through regulation and legislation, that is oppressive. Um, you know, I find it quite a uh, well. It's it's an abuse of power, and uh, when you have people in suits in high places um, altering your ability to be a maker, then it's an arrogance of them to decide that they can continue their taking. So the chickens have to come home to roost, don't they? Absolutely. And they will. They absolutely will. If we don't take control, then it's not going to be pleasant. It's well, not going to be uh, something you want to do. And, you know, I've had massive uh, retaliation when I um, used the – we came in, in New Zealand about 2008. There, there became this term, uh, aside from the 91 uh, Resource Management Act and the big precautionary principle under that act – uh, there came this this idea that we'd all collaborate uh, because we'd collaborate and uh, we'd all be happy because we'd get the right outcomes. Well, it's been quite a coercive concept. And so you argue, uh, you label, um, you know, what some people uh, term a collaborator and that didn't end well for some and in more times. Um, and then you label them a uh, coercive communist. And all of a sudden, um, you know, you're, you're considered a, a madman. So I've had that pushback, uh, but I think that's the shock tactics we've got to use. Uh, you know, uh, there's plenty of, as you talked about earlier, we haven't given the history lesson on why communism is bad and, and, and won't end well for any of us if we're not careful. But there seems to be this unwillingness to even talk about it in New Zealand. Um, so the shock tactics that I've used have, uh, have not done me well, but, um, you know, got to keep talking about it. You don't know who you've influenced, though, by it. So maybe maybe you've changed somebody's life because you've said it. And that's what we have to do. And, well, uh, and we've stepped yeah. uh, this reality check radio has only been going about three and a half weeks. And, uh, you know, we've got okay. all sorts of conversations going on um, right. from a variety of topics. Um, some of it's shocking. Some of it's quite mild. Um, but, you know, the conversation's got to start, hasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And what you were saying just now, Tom, you know, that young girl you spoke about at Cambridge, that exemplifies what a friend of mine, she often uses these words. She says, if you're not a communist at 20, you don't have a heart. But if you're still a communist at 40, you don't have a brain. And something will change by then and one lives in hope. But yeah, it is universities, especially these days, my husband and I, you know, out here hiring on the farm and we, that's a big place 1200 cows we often think someone who's just fresh out of university uh thinks we it has actually skewed our mindset in how we view fresh graduates coming out of our universities here such like the one don mentioned so there's this university out here that's in dire financial straits 
yesterday it says it's going to shed of hundreds of jobs possibly. At the same time, it spent over a million bucks designing a new logo, removing the traditional coat of arms, was it, turn on their website and putting in a local, uh, I think it's a local tribal, some that, sort of that. motif there. Mm. So it is like, what are your priorities? How much of the sculptural Marxism is going to go on? And uh, where does it stop? Where does the insanity stop? One other thing is changing subject uh, slightly, but on the same vein in terms of spending. Yesterday, it became apparent to me that New Zealand spent $116 million on advertising around COVID response. Um, now, there's 5 million people in this country. $116 million was spent by the state feeding media organisations and, uh, and the like. And that's, that's before we give the privileged um, journalism fund, which is, um, I last count was 55 million, but I rumours are it may have doubled. Uh, so, gosh, we're in a bind. Uh, has America got these same issues going on? Has the United States, I mean, got these same issues oh, of, of large? No yes. question about it. Absolutely. And, of course, we have uh, these people in the White House now and in Congress, uh, Biden and Schumer and Pelosi and these people putting all this stuff in place. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the Republican Party uh, is useless. They they don't, they just sit there and twiddle their thumbs and uh, uh, allow all this stuff to happen when they've got such a wealth of stuff that they could go in and attack and, and begin to show why it's bad and so forth. And uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the head of the Senate, I, I have said, you know, of all the politicians in the world that we could loathe, the number one politician that I loathe is Mitch McConnell, because, you know, he, he's just letting all this happen. He's going along with them. He's, he's one of them, basically, and uh, pretending to be the opposition, and he's not. And uh, so I think that's more loathsome. It's, it's one thing to, pro you know, promote your own ideas and what you believe in. It's another one to lie about it and say, oh, that's not me. You know, that's more loathsome to me. So, but um, you know, what we have now, of course, behind all this uh, and, and with the whole COVID lockdown, if if you really hated living under that and what it was like where you're having to stay home and have you can't go out and can't do anything and everything's controlled, this is their view of what we need to do. I'm hearing more and more of, of their policies about staying at home. Uh, don't go to the movie theater. Don't go out to a club. Don't, you know, get in your car and travel because that hurts the environment and all this. And the the Great Reset is the root of all of this. Now it is it is taken uh, when they when they introduced Agenda Twenty One. They said it was a comprehensive blueprint for the reorganization of human society. And then we got Agenda Twenty Thirty and its seventeen goals, which had hardly anything to do with the environment. But it, it laid out the, uh, you know, the goals, what they want to do. Then we hear we got the Green New Deal. Now we have the Great Reset. What Klaus Schwab did was rewrite the uh, comprehensive blueprint to bring it up to speed. What it really is, is reinvented communism. That's what it is. And it, 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 the, the reorganization of human society, the, uh, uh, it's the outright elimination of our economy, our income sources and our jobs, our private property, our personal privacy, our individual choice, uh, our families as we know them, the, uh, our communication, our entertainment, the, uh, you know, 
farms, healthcare, everything is being reset. That's what they mean. They have openly said, as they've gone through this, I got quote after quote, as they're attacking capitalism. Capitalism is a thing to hate. Kids coming out of school today hate capitalism because that's what they've been taught. And, uh, you know, these kids coming out of school are victims of this because how could they ever know any better? What, you know, we, we they sit there eight hours a day having this stuff pounded into their head. And uh, this is this is done by, you know, uh, this part of the goal of doing this to create these generations. But the great reset is what they have said now is that uh, sustainable. This is this is the key word. I, I hadn't mentioned it yet. I'm surprised I haven't. Sustainable, 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 everything. Sustainable has absolutely nothing to do with protecting the environment. It is a trigger word to get you to voluntarily give up your liberties. And Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, who created the Great Reset, uh, are using that word. They're saying now on um, the investments in, in corporations and so forth, if they can't prove that their product is produced sustainably, they will not be invested in. And Klaus Schwab has said that only a few corporations will survive this. Are you watching what's happening you know, and around the world, the world economy? And what's interesting about this is you're now finding corporations that are coming up with ideas on how their product is sustainable. We have a product of, pardon me, toilet paper in this country that now says on the outside labeling of the cover of the packaging that for every 100 uh, trees cut down to make this product, 400 are planted. It's sustainable. <laughs> what did we just have? Bud Light beer. I don't know if you've been watching this in your news it's or not. What they have just gone through. See, they're, they're playing the game. They're sustainable. You know, they, they're caring about the transgender community and so forth. One of the ESG uh, uh, goals and all that. So there it is. These corporations are going to do this dance to prove that they are sustainable. The, the uh, automotive industry taking everything to the electric cars, even though nobody can afford them and there's not going to be electricity for them. But they're going to do the right thing. This is the Great Reset and uh, and what, what they're putting in place. It is reinvented communism. It is absolute total control. And you will have no freedoms whatsoever if this is put into place. And Klaus Schwab is the perfect portrayal of a James Bond villain. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can just see him right there. <laughs> we got to be James Bond. Take him out. <laughs> yeah, we've got to be 007. Interestingly, uh, Tom, our um, former prime minister, is one of the young global leaders um, of that school of uh, WEF. And in her acceptance speech a couple of years ago, um, she used all the words straight out of the Klaus's, uh, granddad Klaus's um, playbook, like build back better and uh, we're going to have a just transition and we're going to be kind and we're going to do all these things. <laughs> I mean, you've you've heard Trudeau say similar stuff. You've seen seen Biden say it. You've seen Macron say it. Uh, Boris Johnson used it. Um, I think even Scott Morrison in Australia used it. So there's hope because two out of those three, have, in fact, three out of those five, six have have left power. So there is hope. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it's amazing with Klaus Schwab. He wrote this book, COVID nineteen and the Great Reset. 
And uh, he says that this book was written uh, after the pandemic to show the weakness of capitalism and what we learned from that lockdown and, and how it showed the weakness of capitalism. Now, here's the amazing thing about this book. The lockdown, the whole pandemic lockdown started in March of 2020. This book came out in August of 2020. Now, I've written three books, and I know that, first of all, to write a book, you got to come up with a concept, then you got to do the research, then you actually have to write it, then you have to find the publishers and editors to you know put it together and get it out there. This Superman did this in five months. Yeah, right. <laughs> this was written before the pandemic. In 2018, the World Economic Forum did a test a uh, trial run of what would happen if they had a worldwide pandemic. In 2019, he did it again with Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. And in 2020, golly gee, it happened. You know, what a Superman. Oh, nothing to, <laughs> nothing to see here. No, no crony yeah. capitalism, no cronies involved in any of this uh, capitalist right. uh, push. No, <laughs> absolutely nothing. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. And I think we we should be... At some time, if we can get you back, you've been very generous today. We should talk about ESG and migration and how a few of those things are playing into this whole issue. Because I, I know you have migration there. For you guys, it's as easy as just opening your borders. We have mass migration here in New Zealand in the midst of a housing, medical, I mean, every sort of crisis you can think of. And uh, God, the chickens are really coming home to roost. For our listeners... Yeah. This was a Tom DeWeese, and uh, for those who would like to know more, have a look at AmericanPolicy.org. I see a special on your book right now, Tom, The Activist Handbook, Handbook, How to Fight Back in Your Community. And I should say I have downloaded, taken a digital one of it at one time. And Catching Fire News, that is also, Tom, how frequently do you do a podcast there? We've got uh, uh, six different hosts that do... Um... Uh, programming on there and uh we have over uh we're just one year old and we've done over uh 300 programs in that period of time right yeah and that's something uh your new i think i've subscribed somehow to your website because each time a new one is loaded i get an email reminder and that's, right. that's mm -hmm. definitely always worth a listen and each time i watch it it never fails to strike me how similar we are it's the same thing happening across the world. And yet there's Absolutely. those who think that if we say it's a planned uh, program, that is a conspiracy. Yep. Well, for those who would like to listen more about this conspiracy, we shall have a lot more to come. But for now, we will sign off and see you at another time. Thank you so much for listening. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.